and welcome to Long Live the Queen, where we talk about the women who made history. And by we, I mean the royal we, because it's just me. This week, our subject is Anne of Cleves. Anne of Cleves was born in 1515, on either the 22nd of September, or more probably on the 28th of June. We don't know exactly, but we have two really specific dates. She was born in Dusseldorf, the second daughter of John III, Duke of Cleves, and his wife Maria, Duchess of Eulach-Cleveburg. Anne's mother was a die-hard Catholic. Anne's father was influenced by Erasmus and followed a moderate path within the Reformation. He was open to Protestantism, but not a fanatic. Europe at this time was going through a lot of changes. The Middle Ages were mostly gone and the Renaissance was in full force. Part of the Renaissance was people thinking about human rights and what that looked like within religion. Cleves was a duchy, and Anne's father was a duke. Cleves was part of the greater Holy Roman Empire, run mostly on its own as a little kingdom. Duke John the Peaceful was his name, and that suggests pretty peaceful time when Europe was being ruled mainly by young kings with something to prove. By the time Anne was about five years old, the King of England was 29-year-old King Henry VIII. The King of France was 26-year-old King Francois I. And the Holy Roman Emperor was the 20-year-old, also King of Spain, Charles V. And they were all vying for the chance to be top king. Europe was a young man's game. Duke John was just trying to keep things as peaceful as possible in his little duchy. Anne seems to have grown up in a happy household. She had an older sister and a younger brother and sister. She was the second child and middle daughter. Her parents' marriage had been a political marriage to unite Cleves with Eulichburg, and it had worked. They seemed like they were in love. Their core is what we would see as very traditional now. The women were covered up, the men and women didn't socially interact, and music and dancing was frowned upon. But it was, for the day, quite liberal with its thoughts. They were Catholic, but Anne's father really got pretty into Erasmus, so he was a humanist. He didn't like war, even for religion. Because of that, he thought that the Catholic Church needed reforms. Crusades weren't a good look. Duke John's oldest daughter, Sibylla, she was said to be very beautiful. She was married at 14 to the 23-year-old future ruler of Saxony, John Frederick. Two and a half years later, they had their first baby, John Frederick II. And when they added another son, they named him John William. And then another son, John Ernest. And then they ran out of names, I guess, because their fourth son has the same name as their first son, John Frederick. The third. So they are a family of six, and five of them are named John, because that's not confusing at all. It gets worse. Sibylla's husband, John Frederick, his father was John Frederick, and his brother was John Ernest. His grandfather was Ernest, and his great-grandfather was Frederick. So it was a family thing, I guess. Her father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, also all John's. 
None of this John stuff is needed information, really. But clearly, they weren't thinking about how hard it would be for us all to follow it later. So back to Duke John, Anne's father, if the Johns are confusing you. He married his oldest daughter off to a Protestant. This probably doesn't seem like a big deal, but this was a time when Catholics and Protestants were killing each other. It was a big deal. His new son-in-law had been educated by the same man that had advised Martin Luther. He became pen pals with Martin Luther. For my Protestants out there, especially the Lutherans, that's kind of a big deal. For everyone else, he was really, really Protestant. He was in the room where it happened, so the Catholics weren't happy about it all. John was peaceful, but he was picking a side, and it wasn't the side of the Pope. It is the Protestant Reformation. In one corner, we have the papacy, France, most of the Holy Roman Empire, and all European Catholic monarchs. In the other corner, we have Cleves, England, Martin Luther, and all of the European non-Catholic but still Christian monarchs. Because remember, they were all the same religion. They were just splitting over whether or not the Pope was necessary. He decided to side with the Schmuckledick League, because a snappy nickname always helps, and opposed Emperor Charles V. In 1527, at the age of 11, Anne was betrothed to the nine-year-old son and heir of the Duke of Lorraine. But they were young, and the betrothal was considered unofficial and was canceled. Best case scenario for a child marriage, in my opinion, canceled. Her brother William was a Lutheran, but her family was unaligned religiously, with her mother, the Duchess Maria, being described as a strict Catholic. Anne's father and the Duke of Lorraine were fighting Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, for Gelderland. There was some dispute over who was in control there. If the Duke of Cleves married his daughter to the Duke of Lorraine's son, the couple together probably had a strong, stronger claim than Charles. Charles V took this betrothal as a threat, because it probably was. This hypothetical marriage never materialized. Because of Anne's father's ongoing dispute over Gelderland with Charles V, the family became suitable allies for England's King Henry VIII in the wake of the Truce of Nice. All that means is that Anne's father was mad at Rome, England was mad at France, Rome and France teamed up, so Cleves and England did likewise. It was the Catholics versus the not-so-Catholics. After John's death, Anne's brother, William, became Duke of Eulet Cleavesburg, bearing the promising epithet, the rich. Yes, he was William the Rich, Duke of Eulet Cleavesburg. So good for him. The fact that he was rich was his most notable quality. I'm not sure if that makes him very boring or very wealthy. Anne's sister, Sibylla's husband, John Frederick, was by now Elector of Saxony head of the Protestant Confederation of Germany, and considered the champion of the Reformation. They were really going for this Protestant Reformation thing. A match had been suggested to King Henry VIII with Christina of Denmark. Hans Holbein the Younger was commissioned to paint her portrait for the king, and it was completed in 1538. Henry wanted to see her profile pic before committing. This was online dating before the internet. The painting shows the then 16-year-old Christina of Denmark, widowed Duchess of Milan, since she had been 13. Her striking manner and strength of character are apparent in her portrait. 
Although Henry was taken by the representation, the marriage proposal did not go ahead, not least because Christina was aware of Henry's earlier mistreatment of his wives. She is reported as saying, if I had two heads, I would happily put one at the disposal of the King of England. She swiped left and Europe moved on. Henry's reputation wasn't great in the marriage market at this point. He was seen as a risk for obvious reasons. His first wife was abandoned and forcibly separated from her only child. His second wife had been accused of adultery and incest and then beheaded. His third wife had been attended by the finest medical staff in England and still died having her first baby, probably from medical neglect. Any new wife would be expected to have babies, and none of those options appealed to Christina of Denmark. It was a hard pass. The match with Anne of Cleves was then urged on the king by his chief minister, Thomas Cromwell. The king was arguably in a pretty deep depression still after the loss of his third and arguably favorite wife just over a year before. He had gained a lot of weight and developed diabetes since the death of his wife, Jane, and he suffered a jousting wound that never healed and would be an open wound on his leg until the day he died. The artist, Hans Holbein the Younger, was again dispatched to paint portraits of Anne and her younger sister, Amalia, each of whom Henry was considering to be his fourth wife. Henry required that the artist be as accurate as possible, not to flatter the sisters. These portraits still exist. You can see them. The portraits are now located in the Louvre in Paris and the Victorian Albert Museum in London. If what you have heard is that Anne was ugly, she wasn't. Full smear campaign, but we'll get into that. Negotiations to arrange the marriage were in full swing by March, and a marriage treaty was signed on the 4th of October of that year. The king agreed to a dowry of 100,000 florins from the bride's brother, who was now the new Duke of Cleves. Henry valued education and cultural sophistication in women, but Anne lacked these traits. She had received no formal education, but was skilled in needlework and liked playing card games. She could read and write, but only in German. Anne hadn't been raised to be a queen. She had been raised to be the wife of a duke or a count. Nevertheless, Anne was considered gentle, virtuous, and docile, which is why she was recommended as a suitable candidate for Henry. He didn't want a mouthy wife. Remember Anne Boleyn? The court that Anne grew up in was very conservative. Men and women didn't interact socially. The men King Henry had sent to verify Anne's beauty and her sister's were only allowed to meet them in full dress, including a veil. When the suggestion that she remove the veil was made, they were horrified, asking if they wanted to see her naked. If you're going to take the veil off her face, we might as well just strip her down and parade her around town. Anne was described by French ambassador Charles de Marriac as tall and slim, of middling beauty, and a very assured and resolute countenance. She was fair-haired and was said to have had a lovely face, meaning she was blonde, nice-looking, confident, and comfortable. Anne was initially to travel to England alone with her entourage. The death of her father prevented her brother and her mother from traveling. But there were other concerns about a beautiful, sheltered young woman who had never traveled by sea making such a journey, especially during the winter. She traveled from Dusseldorf to Cleves and then to Antwerp, 
where she was received by 50 English merchants. She asked the king's friend and brother-in-law, Charles Brandon, to teach her a card game that the king liked, so they would have something to do when they met, and was met with horrified looks from her ladies when she suggested that they dine with the men. In Cleves, men and women didn't dine together. She insisted that she would have to do it eventually, so she would have to start practicing. She really was trying very hard to assimilate to English culture. Anne was supposed to have spent Christmas with the king, but the journey was long and rough, and she arrived after Christmas. If you listen to the Catherine of Aragon episode, I mentioned that I thought Henry was attempting to recreate Catherine's arrival with Anne. But she didn't arrive in time, and Henry was a moody man. This would have been a thorn in his shoe. He had plans, and Anne was ruining them. Strike one. Henry met her privately on New Year's Day, 1540, at Rochester Abbey on her journey from Dover. Here is where it started to go very, very wrong. Henry and some of his courtiers, following a courtly love tradition, went disguised to the room where Anne was staying. Remember when Margaret of Anjou kept King Henry on his knees because she didn't know it was him? This was so, so much worse. Eustace Chapuis reported, The king so went up into the chamber where the said Lady Anne was looking out of the window to see the bull baiting, which was going on in the courtyard. And suddenly he embraced and kissed her and showed her a token which the king had sent for her, New Year's gift. And she, being abashed and not knowing who it was, thanked him. And so he spoke with her, but she regarded him little, but always looked out the window. And when the king saw that she took so little notice of his coming, he went into another chamber and took off his cloak and came in again in a coat of purple velvet. And when the lords and knights saw his grace, they did him reverence. Strike two. Do me a favor if you don't know what bull baiting is and don't Google it. I can understand why it would be distracting, though. According to the testimony of Henry's companions, he was disappointed with Anne, feeling that she was not as described. Henry then revealed his true identity to Anne, although he is said to have been put off the marriage from then on. He didn't think she looked like her profile pic. He was disappointed. Strike three. She was tall, blonde, 24 years old, and willing to marry him, even though his first three wives were abandoned, beheaded, and died from complications in childbirth. I don't want to say his standards were unreasonable, but he was a 48-year-old man on his fourth wife who had recently gained a lot of weight in a relatively short amount of time and developed diabetes. Insulin was not readily available. It wouldn't even be discovered for another almost 500 years. But he was the disappointed one because one of the most famous painters for the time had gotten it wrong. Sherry Jan. What happened was he had done what he had always done and pretended to be just a random guy in a costume. The reason it had worked so well before is because he had been a very attractive man and his previous three wives already knew him and could recognize him even in a costume. They knew it was him and they just played along. So a handsome stranger flirted with them and they flirted back because they knew it was the king. Henry was no longer young and handsome. So that same behavior that had been so charming in his youth had become a little creepier than it used to be. Also, 
What did he want? A wife who would just flirt with any random guy? How about you introduce yourself like a gentleman? How about that? I'm sorry if I seem annoyed. I am. That poor German woman didn't stand a chance. Henry and Anne then officially met on the 3rd of January, properly, as it should have been done in the first place, on Blackheath, outside the gates of Greenwich Park, where a grand reception was laid out. Most historians believe that Henry's misgivings about the marriage were blamed on Anne's alleged unsatisfactory appearance and her failure to inspire him to consummate the marriage. He felt that he had been misled after his advisors had praised Anne's beauty. She is nothing so fair as she hath been reported, he complained to Cromwell. Cromwell received some blame for the Holbein portrait, which Henry believed had not been accurate. Uh, he didn't think it looked like her. I think that was mostly a him thing. I mean, maybe it was a good angle. Have you ever had a really good picture taken of you where it's just a great angle and you're like, I look good. That's possible. But Hans Holbein was a good painter. It looked like her. When the king finally met Anne, he was reportedly shocked by her plain appearance and the marriage was never consummated. Look, he was a total jerk. He was still mourning his last wife, who he felt had been taken from him, as opposed to the previous two that he just kind of threw away. Henry urged Cromwell to find a legal way to avoid the marriage, but by this point, doing so was impossible without endangering the vital alliance with the Germans. In his anger and frustration, the king turned on Cromwell to his subsequent regret. Despite Henry's very vocal misgivings, the two were married on the 6th of January, 1540. He was sure a charmer. The phrase, God send me well to keep, was engraved around Anne's wedding ring. Immediately after arriving in England, Anne conformed to the Catholic form of worship, which Henry had retained after his break with Rome. Because after all, he was still a Catholic. He just didn't want to answer to the Pope. The couple's first night as husband and wife was not a successful one. Harry confided to Cromwell that he had not consummated the marriage, saying, I liked her before not well, but now I like her much worse. Rude. The king suffered from a little ED. He said because his wife was too ugly to inspire him. It likely had more to do with him. He also claimed she smelled. Also, probably more of a him problem at this point. In February 1540, one month into their marriage, speaking to the Countess of Rutland, Anne praised the king as a kind husband, saying, When he comes to bed, he kisseth me, and he taketh me by the hand, and he biddeth me good night, sweetheart, and in the morning kisseth me and biddeth me farewell, darling. Meaning no sex. It was unclear if she knew that sex was required to have a baby. She was a very sheltered 24. The other option is she could have been being sarcastic when she was asked, like, hey, how's it going? How's the baby making going? She's like, well, he kisses me, so it's going well. And maybe they missed her sarcasm. I'm not sure. Lady Rutland responded, Madam, there must be more than this, or it will be long ere we have a Duke of York which all this realm most desireth. Meaning, girl, if you want to give the king a spare, this isn't going to cut it. 
He only has one son, and England could use a second. But I'm not sure what they were expecting her to do. His pride was likely already damaged beyond repair. It only got worse when Lady Mary, the king's retroactively illegitimate daughter in heavy air quotes, came to court to meet her new stepmother. Anne didn't know everything that went down because she hadn't been in England, and again, she was sheltered. There was no internet. She wasn't watching him on TMZ with all his marriage drama. She thought meeting the king's now bastard daughter was an insult. It was awkward because it was rude. No one explained that she was Princess Mary until she was 17 and her dad got mad at her mom and preferred his new family. Things were not going well for Anne. Anne was commanded to leave the court on the 26th of June, and on the 6th of July, she was informed of her husband's decision to reconsider the marriage. Anne was terrified. She was still communicating through interpreters, but she didn't know what was about to happen. She broke down, screaming and crying. Of his three previous marriages, he had two discarded wives, abandoning one to die alone and straight up beheading the other one. She didn't even know what she had done wrong. Witness statements were taken from a number of courtiers and two physicians, which register the king's disappointment at her appearance. King Henry also commented that he could not believe she was a virgin. Rude. Henry had regretted his decisions. The reason for this marriage was to get an ally against the Pope and the Holy Roman Empire after he left the Catholic Church. But Cleves wasn't the ally they had hoped, and they were about to go to war with the Holy Roman Empire. Henry had hoped that he would get support from the Schmackeldick League, but he was still a Catholic that didn't want to listen to the Pope. They wanted nothing to do with him. On paper, he was Protestant, but he wasn't Lutheran, so they didn't count it. Henry claimed this whole alliance situation had not been explained to him properly by Cromwell, whose job it was to set this marriage and alliance up. And Cromwell had done a very good job setting it up. He was probably the greatest lawyer of the time in England, and he had made a deal that wouldn't be easy to break. He was too good at his job. Shortly afterwards, Anne was asked for her consent to an annulment, which she agreed, because what else was she going to do? She was like, dude, you don't want to be married to me? Same. Let's just call this marriage a day. Nothing to see here. Hashtag dodged a bullet. Cromwell was the moving force behind the marriage, and he was attained for treason, meaning that setting up this blind date from hell got him killed. It also got his wife and children disinherited. Let's keep in mind that Cromwell had supported the king in his first divorce. He had spearheaded the trial that got his second wife beheaded and was the key player in setting him up with his third wife, the love of his life. But setting up this fourth marriage, that that was all it took for him to lose favor. King Henry was increasingly unstable and only getting worse. It was every man and woman for themselves, just trying to survive the later reign of King Henry VIII. The marriage was annulled on the 12th of July, 1540, because they weren't wasting any time, on the grounds of non-consummation and her pre-contract to Francois of Lorraine. Henry VIII's physician stated that after the wedding night, Henry said he was not impotent because he experienced duas pollutionis nocturnus en somno, 
Two, nocturnal pollutions while in sleep. Twice, he had a dirty dream to completion, so it must be Anne's fault. Okay. Anne had been given dower lands to fund her household, including manor houses. Dower lands were what a queen would get if the king died, so she could support her post-king lifestyle. The king was still alive, but he was like, take your inheritance and go. And she was like, nice doing business with you. She was a little bit extra and sent her wedding ring back to the king, suggesting that he smash it into a million pieces, as it no longer had any meaning to her. As former queen, she received a generous settlement, including Richmond Palace and Hever Castle, the home of Henry's former in-laws, the Boleyns. Henry and Anne became good friends. She was an honorary member of the king's family and was referred to as the king's beloved sister. She was invited to court often and, out of gratitude for her not contesting the annulment, Henry decreed that she would be given precedence over all women in England, save his own wife and daughters. So he was like Ross in Friends. He had failed at marriage a lot of times, and he just didn't want to talk about it. Anyway, on to wife number five. Quick, Cromwell's blind marriage was a bust. The Duke of Norfolk was like, look, I know that last time I told you to marry my niece Anne Boleyn, it didn't end great. Mistakes were made, but I have other nieces. I have this one. She's 17. She's very pretty, and her name is Catherine. She likes parties and has good manners and is just a fun girl. I know last time my niece lost her head, but how badly could it go? If you need a reminder, Catherine would be his fifth wife. Count on your fingers the sixth wives of King Henry. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded. It is going to end very badly. Worse than last time. Catherine will have an episode. She's up next. But back to Anne and her Matrix-style bullet dodging. Anne spent her Christmases at court and seemed to enjoy her time. She was close with the king and his daughters. She is said to have passed her time flirting, sporting, and on recreation. Once, she bought 200,000 gallons of beer for her household. Probably to sell. But maybe it was a party. I don't know. I don't know. Probably to sell. She was probably reselling the beer. Anne's old betrothed, the Duke of Lorraine, was getting married to none other than Christina of Denmark. King Henry's whole divorce was based on the fact that he said Anne was already married to the Duke of Lorraine. So by marrying the girl who turned Henry down, that wasn't appreciated. Henry sent letters telling people to pick sides. Either you agreed with the king's divorce and you would skip the wedding, or you didn't and you would go. And people pick sides. So Anne was living her best single lady life. Henry married Catherine Howard. Stuff happened. Catherine was executed. We'll get into that next week. After Catherine Howard was beheaded, Anne and her brother William, Duke of Ulick-Cleesburg, pressed the king to remarry Anne. Why? No idea. Seems like more of a her brother thing than a her thing. Why risk that? She had it made. Henry quickly refused to do so. Phew! She seems to have disliked Catherine Parr and reportedly said of Henry's sixth marriage, Madame Parr is taking on a great burden on herself. I mean, she wasn't wrong. 
Just don't think too much about what happened to the last Catherine. Yikes. Her former husband then died at the age of 55 when Anne was still only 31. The king is dead. Long live the king. Nine-year-old King Edward V. Anne was one of only two of Henry's wives to outlive him, the other being the last wife, the 34-year-old Catherine Parr, who died the following year. Anne was the last wife standing. In the rhyme, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived, she's the second divorced. But let's be honest, she's the real winner here. She had been well taken care of under Henry's reign. When the economy faltered and her funds were diminishing, the king gave her more money. He just gave her a raise. But he was gone now, and his nine-year-old son Edward was now the king. Edward did not feel the same responsibility to Anne as his father had. And in any case, his government was being run by other people because he was still a child. What was obvious was that Anne wasn't going to get any more raises from the crown. She was the stepmother of a king whose father had had six wives. This phase in her life only lasted six years, though. The son Henry had wanted so badly died at the age of 15, unmarried and childless. The king is dead. Long live the queen? The question was, what queen? Edward did not get along with his older sister, Mary. She was very Catholic, and he was very not. And being older than the Protestant Elizabeth, she should have been next. But her brother changed the succession, naming his cousin and fellow Protestant Lady Jane Grey as his heir. A whole big drama happened. And people thought Mary became the new Queen of England. The first uncontested Queen Regnant of England. Because Jane was contested, then killed. Once she was gone, Mary became uncontested. So the king and then kind of the queen died. Long live the queen. On the 4th of August, 1553, Anne wrote to King Henry's daughter, Queen Mary I, to congratulate her on her marriage to Philip of Spain. It was a nice gesture, but not really much to congratulate. But we'll get back to that later also. Anne also took part in Mary I's coronation procession and may have been present at her coronation. This was England's first queen to be accepted in her own right. If you don't count Lady Jane Grey, but again, we'll get back to that. She will have an episode. These were her last public appearances. As the new queen was a strict Catholic and yet again changed religion, now becoming a Roman Catholic, because Anne was willing to be whatever kind of Christian would keep her alive. She loved Jesus and she loved living. After a brief return to prominence, she lost royal favor the next year in 1554, following Wyatt's Rebellion. Wyatt's Rebellion was more politically based than religion based, but there was a lot of overlap between politics and religion at this time. Here's the short version. King Henry had three children, Mary, Elizabeth, and Edward. Mary was very Catholic, like her mother and her grandmother. She wanted everyone to know she was the most catholic -y Catholic in England. Elizabeth and Edward had been born into the Church of England after Henry's split from the Catholic Church. They were both Protestants. The Church of England looked Catholic and really wasn't a lot different. They just didn't follow the Pope. Catholics were disappointed when Henry's son Edward, a Protestant, became king. But when he died, 
very young, his elder sister Mary was next in line for the throne, but she was Catholic. So it was a yo-yo of state-required religion. You're Catholic. No, you're Protestant. Nope, nope, you're Catholic. Protestant, Catholic. And if you found yourself on the wrong side, you could be killed. Burned at the stake for picking the wrong side. Burned at the stake for picking the wrong Christian religion. I'm just going to say that Jesus never burned anyone at the stake, and I like to think he was anti-burning people alive. Wyatt's Rebellion were supporters of Anne Boleyn's daughter, the Protestant Elizabeth. They had hoped to replace Mary with Elizabeth as queen. The only way to do that was to kill Mary, because she was at least as legally legitimate as her sister was. Mary did not know if her sister was in on it, but she suspected that she may be. I don't think she was. And if she was, the girl was just trying to stay alive in an age when that wasn't easy. Mary also suspected her stepmother Anne of being involved, because she was very close to Elizabeth. But again, aside from being a supportive stepmother to both women, she didn't seem to take sides. Mary was sure the Protestants were out to get her, and she wasn't totally wrong. It wasn't easy being the first female monarch of England. Arguably, though, she could have had less people martyred. Anne's close association with Elizabeth had convinced the Queen that the Lady Anne of Cleves was of the plots and intrigued with the Duke of Cleves to obtain help for Elizabeth, matters in which the King of France was a prime mover. There is no evidence that Anne was invited back to court after 1554. She was compelled to live a quiet and obscure life on her estates. After her arrival as the king's bride, Anne never left England. Despite occasional feelings of homesickness, Anne was generally content in England and was described as a lady of right commendable regards, courteous, gentle, a good housekeeper, and very bountiful to her servants. When Anne's health began to fail, Mary allowed her to live at Old Chelsea Manor, a one-time residence of the Queen's half-sister Elizabeth, the future Queen Elizabeth I. Here, in the middle of July, 1557, Anne dictated her last will. In it, she mentions her brother, sister, and sister-in-law, as well as the future Queen Elizabeth, the Duchess of Suffolk, and the Countess of Arundel. She left some money to her servants and asked if Mary and Elizabeth could employ them in their households. She was remembered by everyone who served her as a particularly generous and easygoing mistress. She probably would have made a pretty epic wife, but that was Henry's loss. Anne died at Chelsea Old Manor on the 16th of July, 1557, at the age of 42. The most likely cause of her death was cancer. Anne's epitaph in Westminster Abbey, which is in English, reads simply, Anne of Cleves, Queen of England, born 1515, died 1557. Simple, straightforward, and right to the point. And that is where we'll leave it for this week. What did you think of Anne of Cleves? Honestly, I think she lived her best post-king life, and she only had to be married to that man for six months and then moved on. Good for her. She survived against all odds. King Henry executed two of his wives, one before Anne and one after Anne. Anne was able to live her best life as a single woman away from her brother and King Henry. She kind of nailed it. 
You can share your thoughts with me at longlivethequeenpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook or Instagram at longlivethequeenpodcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support me at buymeacoffee.com slash longlivethequeen. Long live to all the queens out there. And until next week, bye.